This episode is sponsored by Exactuals, perfecting insurance payments and the data driving them. Jeff, thank you very much for joining. How are you? Fantastic, thanks. Having a great sunny day up in Vancouver, so no complaints today, but uh, great to be here with you. Thanks. So, I see that you're already inspiring for an IPO. That I love the ticker on your shirt. What's, what's the inspiration? Is that, did, did you already register that or where are we standing? Because last time I checked, you're in a Series A or maybe Series E, Series B. Yeah, you know, we, with the, with the lockdown and remote work, we've really been focusing on, you know, merch and things and ways to engage, you know, different employees. And so we kind of took the Christmas party budget and some of the other things we might have spent on, on an office and that. And we've tried to reinvest it to fun things like this. So we've got, you know, Nike sweaters and we've got pants and track suits and shirts. And one of the, the gear we made was this. Um, and it was kind of inspired. We had registered, um, you know, the, the, the ticker. Uh, we're sort of way ahead of ourselves, but it, you know, it was something that the banker said, hey, make sure you go out and reserve the ticker that you want. And so uh, we got that printed on sweaters as just a little bit of fun. And even though our corporate colors are red, we, we couldn't have a red stock sign. So we had to have the green little off brand, but it's just a fun way to keep the team engaged and uh, keep looking on that, that moonshot kind of vision. Right, that's important, especially for startups. It doesn't matter if you follow the Y Combinator or any one of the, you know, big players in Silicon Valley that they have that moonshot and talk about you need to, you know, you need to reach high. Maybe you will hit in the middle, right? Still high. So, yeah, that's great because, you know, Y Combinator will tell you, print that shirt. Everyone needs to have a T-shirt. And now we're good. Now you're a startup. Go raise money. Well, that's, that's it. You get a corporation certificate and you get, you know, track suits or, or hoodies. And then that's it. That's all you need to be a company, right? That's as much as, uh, as they say in the business book. So the rest of it, the tech and the rest of it, uh, that comes later. What's your favorite? What's your favorite swag? My favorite swag? Um... You know, I, I hate to admit it, but probably the track pants, you know, uh, there's been a lot more, you know, now that we're kind of in, uh, in the sort of work from home world, I think uh, those track pants are getting lots of, uh, lots of wear, but uh, we've got, uh, we've got shoes on the way um, as sort of the, the two year marker. Sure. So I think the shoes are going to be a real hit uh, with the team once you get to your two year anniversary. And so we've got a few people crossing that landmark now. And uh, again, it's just fun ways to, if everyone's going to be remote, how do you just kind of pour a little bit of that culture into the team. So, you know, how, oh, wow. No, this is amazing because usually we talk about, okay, you, you join a company, they will send you a box, a nice branded box. Maybe you'll get a keyboard and a shirt or a hoodie. You know, at those times, my favorite actually beside the hoodie are socks. But now you were talking about shoes. That's, um, and you're going to build it first year you're going to get what what was it the jacket jackets at year one shoes at year two and and we're kind of uh co-founder and i are on year three here so we uh, we haven't quite picked what that's going to be but we figure we got to get ahead of these things i mean it, sometimes we do manage the business and focus on growth and revenue and customers as well but but for the most you know yeah, uh, those those things fall in i think you know one of the most important things we do as a business is is build a great team 
right? The rest kind of comes if you can attract and retain great people. And so I think these little things, particularly in a work from home, how do we reinvent culture? I think that they go a long way. And, and we're just trying to find uh, how do we reinvent those types of things to innovate in the culture space as much as we're innovating in the, the tech and the insurance aspect. So you're the second Canadian company that joins uh, my podcast. The first one was Brisa. So for the people who are less familiar with the Apollo insurance, can you give us a little bit of a background? What is Apollo? What you guys are trying to do in this beautiful industry? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, fundamentally, we're, we're an online insurance company. We're actually set up as an MGA. And so we've got a variety of reinsurance and insurance providers that, that provide uh, capacity to us in different products. We've built the largest selection of online insurance in Canada. And we really take those products to market in two ways. One is we've got a portal for insurance brokers to log into, access all of our products, immediate quote online, find the policy, policy issued and payment. So it's straight through processing and everything we do. So we've got the broker channel. We've got about 2000 brokers uh, that work with us in the broker channel. And then we also have an embedded insurance solution where we sort of take all those same products and we plug them into a variety of different atmospheres. Sometimes that's insurance broker websites. Sometimes that's REITs or property management companies, prop tech. And I think that the embedded insurance model is really what's going to be a 10-year horizon for us as a, as a business. So you're already jumping to, you know, one of my follow-up questions, which will be, of course, you know, what differentiates you from your competitors, especially from, you know, comparing to the incumbents and then to other startups that they are in this space? Yeah, the competitive landscape is a really interesting one. I mean, I think, you know, insurance being one of the, the largest industries on the planet, what is, Canadians spend about $66 billion a year just on property and casualty. The U.S. market being about 10 times at about $600 billion. Globally, it's what, $5 trillion. And so when we look at the competitive landscape, I think, you know, you see a lot of splashy IPOs, a lot of excitement around companies like Next and, and some of the others. But we're really saying, you know what, we can go and compete with the incumbent kind of slow moving companies that aren't as customer centric. And so for us, that's our competitive landscape. We think we can build a significant iconic Canadian business serving the North American market uh, without really worrying about, you know, the other insure techs as much. I think if we focus on customers, they can build a big business. We can too. I think if there's, what is it? There's four insurance companies or 10 in the top four, fortune 100 list, and none of them have more than 5% market share or, somewhere in that range. So it's uh, it's a tremendous opportunity to build a big business, but not have to worry about what Next is doing uh, to serve small businesses. Anything we can do to help entrepreneurs and small businesses post COVID, I think it's gonna be uh, good for the economy, good for the ecosystem. Yeah, Next is a very interesting story by themselves. They recently raised a, another 250, so that put them at their 4 billion valuation. But again, so far they are in the US, you're in Canada, there is a lot of opportunity just in Canada before you look into growing to the US or other markets. On your web, sorry, on your website, I saw that you're also in London. Is that a city in Canada or London in England? Uh, that must be a, a city, one of the cities in Canada. And so we do, you know, have, okay. a, have an emerging Lloyds of London kind of supplier relationship, but um, but fundamentally it's, it's Canadian focused. Uh, we don't operate in Quebec, but again, the Canadian market being you know, just over 60 billion. It's a funny thing when you look at other industries where someone says, hey, in 2025, the esports industry or something will be, 
you know, a, a multi-billion dollar industry. And yet Canadians or, or North Americans spend that kind of um, so regularly on their insurance products. I think it's still a, an industry that's in its inf infancy in that innovation life cycle. Tons of opportunity to keep growing and we want to build a hundred year company. And so when you look at what's this going to look like in 10, 20 years, kind of change your mindset around innovation and, and the roadmap and what we can achieve. It's always interesting to talk to a, you know, a founder that has that vision. It's like, it's not just until the IPO, which you already set up, you know, in your mind and your shirt, you're at the IPO and you're going public. Now you're talking about the hundred years, which is, I don't think that many people think about what will happen in 50 years, 20 years, or even 10 years. Today, how do you work with that? Because today it's so hard to plan three or even five years in advance. I think a lot of it is the, taking the agile methodology and an iterative approach to problem solving. So we don't necessarily have to plan exactly what problem we're going to solve in, in a year or two years. We build a roadmap and iterate, listen to our customers, collect feedback and implement that feedback, but then having a broader kind of 50,000 foot view of, you know, what does this look like in five years, in 10 years? And my thesis is that on a 10 year horizon, you know, micro insurance products won't be bought and sold from a website, they'll be included. I think that's a fundamental philosophy that's different than people that are trying to build a website, pay a bunch in marketing to get people to go to it. Whereas for us, we think, you know what, it's going to be included. And there's whispers of that with Tesla, including car insurance, you know, even Next and Amazon partnering up. I think there's a tremendous opportunity to make it easy for customers by including insurance in places and, and experiences they're already going through instead of trying to distract them from their day to get them to engage with an insurance brand. I completely agree with you. And this is why I left farmers back in, well, almost three years ago to start Bound, which the whole concept was, how do we embed insurance? And that was an embedded insurance platform. Everything it's about, you need to, to be part of the customer journey, not to pull the customer to your journey. They don't care about insurance. And especially when you build a, an I looked at your website, you sell to the yoga instructors, you sell to the small business, or let's not call them gig economy. Um, well, the, the self-employed uh, entrepreneurs from yoga instructors to what else do you have? A, a, one of your favorite uh, class risk classes there. Um, they don't really care about insurance. That's, That's it. I mean, we've got no tons and tons of risk classes available. We do, you know, GL, general liability. We do property. We do E&O. We do, you know, a huge spectrum, whether it's tech companies or consultants or yoga instructors, nonprofits, uh, all the way through renter's insurance and, and soon to be home insurance and other personal products as well. And the idea is exactly what you said is, you know, help people make it easy. Don't distract them from their day, bring them into your funnel. How do we catch them in an existing kind of experience and, and just do a great job serving that customer? I think we start there, then we're going to be able to, again, iterate and, and solve that problem. And it's kind of a, it's rewarding to look at entrepreneurship and say, you know, there's going to be this big upswing, this renaissance of entrepreneurship coming out of the lockdowns and the pandemic. How can we support that? And then there's record number of small business starts. People are starting businesses at their kitchen table right now today. How can we make it easy for them just to get their insurance? And Usually 20 employees is about where we cap off. So we actually serve some, some really good sized, really healthy businesses, not just the solopreneur or the yoga instructor. How do you merge the marketing or the outreach? Because you have 
SMB, commercial SMB, and you just mentioned the, the personal lines. How does it work together? We keep it pretty focused that again, you know, on the one channel serving brokers, a broker that has a storefront, guess what? They're going to have someone walk in that needs a homeowner's policy and someone walk in that needs a small business policy. So that broker is going to have a diverse mix of customers. So if we can serve the broker, we need that product variety and that breadth. And then when you look at the end customer, again, we're focused on embedding these products. If you're a small business, I mean, we're a small business. We're about 50 employees now and we've you know, raised a little bit of money, but I'm still, you know, an entrepreneur. I'm buying as an individual, really. Sure, we're a bit more corporate, but I live somewhere. So if you're going to sell me when it's, you know, two of us in a house starting Apollo, if you're going to sell me insurance for my business, you may as well sell me home insurance at the same time because I live somewhere. And so fundamentally, we look at that as a marriage point. Again, focus on the customer, not on the line of business. And I think if you can do that, then, um, we, you know, it becomes a lot more obvious that these products are a lot complementary to each other. And it's not business insurance over here and, you know, personal insurance over here. Like, I think a lot of the carriers separate it out that way. But we're focused on the customers right in the middle and they might need a variety of things. Let's serve that customer and focus on their needs. And that's going to be a more holistic approach for their success. Are you working with other incumbents or start or insurtechs to bundle those products together? Definitely on the incumbent side. I mean, because we're not full stack, you know, we want to be more capital light uh, in our model. And so on that side, we work with, you know, a great number of insurance companies. I think we're at 10 or 11 incumbents now. And so we go to them and create and bundle these kind of digital products, create the algorithm, iterate it. And sometimes that gives them added distribution. Sometimes it gives them efficiency. Um, you know, we can start mixing and matching products from different companies. And so it's a really interesting journey to go through with the incumbents. You know, we used to have a feature in the platform that would pay them right away. And a few of them were like, no, we can't, we don't want that. Like you have to send us a check. Like we don't, we don't want the automatic premium settlements from the transaction. We want you, you know, you've got to send us. And so we actually were a little bit ahead of ourselves in some of the functionality, but it just shows kind of working with incumbents in that life cycle, um, you know, how, how much opportunity I think there is in the industry. And also sometimes it's a cultural phenomenon in those organizations to be really hesitant. You know, we're like, hey, we can settle your premiums in real time. And they're like, no, 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 pay us in 60 days. And to me, as a business person, 60 days worth of cash flow is meaningful. Um, so, you know, it's, it's interesting to see those kind of dynamics. But I think the incumbents are, you know, they're on an innovation life cycle. They're working through it. They're going through underwriting system overhauls, whether that's Guidewire, Duck Creek. You know, they're working on, on how do they empower their staff remotely? How do they move to a remote culture? I mean, they've got a lot of problems to solve, but they're big organizations. So it's hard to be nimble. Um, but there's a lot of great work being done in the industry. And I think we're taking a different approach and where you can be a bit more nimble as a startup and having a bit of cash behind us uh, certainly helps. Yeah, I can see the, the process of the people in the treasury going like, okay, so if you're going to collect those premiums, it's going to cost us 1% or half a percent. And that's going to affect us in this way. Although you're going to receive the money now, it's going to be more expensive for them to process it. And it's outside of the current process. At the same time, you benefit, you have a float. So you actually can have that money and do something with it. Because as you know, as an insurance company, the majority part, well, uh, for the incumbents, the majority of their income comes from the float and the investment. Now that's impressive. And you know, I should actually give love a little bit to, to our main sponsor, Exactuals. 
because their solution is actually providing that complex uh, payments, if it's uh, commissions or um, how you call that, um, uh, royalties, and you know, frag fragments of payments to all kinds of parties. Uh, the origin actually comes from the music industry. So, you know, every time you sell a CD or download a track, whatever that may be, and there is royalty, now you need to figure out how the hell you're going to pay for all of those folks. It's a very interesting uh, solution that is so needed if it was in the music industry and, of course, in the insurance industry. So that was enough with that. Really cool. Let's go back to talk it's with really you. really yeah, interesting, sorry. though, because there's so many problems to be solved in the industry, whether it's telematics over here, there's the whole claims world, there's you know straight through processing and in personal and commercial lines, there's how do you split payments just regardless of the product that you're selling. So... I think it's an interesting time because there's so many problems to be solved. There's going to be a lot of great companies uh, that are going to get out and, and, and try and solve them. So a little bit history of the company. You launched in April 19. You raised, uh, recently you raised, what was it? Uh, 13, 13 million? Well, it was just, uh, just 13 before Christmas last year. I think it was the 23rd of December. Um, the... Uh, kind of final close came through. And so, um, you know, everyone was working hard right before the holiday there to, to get it across the line. So it was a um, great process. But yeah, we launched in April of 2019. You know, my background is from the insurance industry. Uh, so I spent the better part of the last decade as vice president digital strategy, vice president marketing e-commerce at a traditional brokerage group, you know, implementing CRMs, implementing digital lead flows. And you know, became we became very good at building kind of template products, driving lead flows. But inevitably, there was just a team of people kind of in the other room who had to service those leads the traditional way. And we really realized that building the technology for online quote, bind online, pay online, that was what was going to allow us to convert the volume uh, much more effectively. So that was the thesis behind starting Apollo. We spun out and um, you've been able to raise about 60 million so far. Um, to kind of, you know, fulfill the, the vision. I mean, being in Vancouver, it's we used to be on an airplane to Toronto and, and all over the place, you know, five times a month and kind of living out a suitcase. So the world in that sense has changed, but uh, it's been great building a company in the Canadian landscape. And I think lots of opportunity to expand into the U.S. as well. How did the lockdown affect your business? Because you were talking about the vision, traveling, you know, Toronto, Vancouver, going back and forth. I know that I used to live on American Airlines for a while. How how did your life change, especially for Apollo and your plan? Without a doubt, I think uh, it's changed. You know, operationally, in a lot of sense, it hasn't changed at all because we were already set up remote. We had an office because I think the culture in an office is really important, but we were already set up. Everyone was issued a laptop. Nobody had desktop computers. If you wanted to work remotely from you know, Costa Rica or Toronto or some airplane or your backyard, you could do that. So we already set ourselves up that way. So when the, you know, the lockdown happened a year ago, it was interesting because all the other companies had to kind of scramble to learn how to do that. But we had been on Zoom and Slack and that for, you know, since we started the company. So we were a couple of years into that. Where I think it really has changed for us, one is that it's so much more efficient. You know, we get to meet and we get to sort of have this conversation, but I used to jump on an airplane, you know, fly halfway across 
a continent, rent a car, drive another two hours and go buy someone lunch to try and sort out a way to, to, to do a deal or to, to implement some piece of technology or, you know, solve a problem for them. And now that might be 30 minutes on a Zoom call. And so in that sense, you know, the efficiencies for our business um, have really picked up. It's tough because you don't get to build a strong relationships, not being there in person. But I think where another area that's changed is culturally, we've been able to really hire and build a team now from such a diverse pool. So we have people all across Canada. And so, you know, if you want to come to the office, uh, we have opportunities to do that. But for the most part, now our talent pool has expanded dramatically. And so now we can really hire the best person for the job, regardless of location. I think that's going to be a competitive advantage for us and for companies that get really good at working remotely, building remote cultures, onboarding training, and and then really getting people up to speed uh, in a remote world. I think there's a lot of great talent. You know, we've been fortunate in Vancouver to have some great tech companies that have exited. Um, you know, plenty official for for 400 million. Um, you know, we have um, Hootsuite's a great tech company here. There's a lot of big companies that are setting up shop here. We've got Amazon and Microsoft. We kind of find that challenging sometimes because now we have to compete for talent with those bigger companies. But I think we've been fortunate to have some tech exits that recycle that talent and, and that experience and that capital back into the ecosystem. So Vancouver's got a, a strong talent pool, lots of capital, lots of great investors, lots of people that made money in different segments, real estate, cannabis or otherwise that want to reinvest into emerging tech trends. And so um, at least from a Vancouver perspective. And then Toronto, I mean, it's sort of a, the only proper big city in Canada from that perspective. So I think you have um, a lot of innovation, a lot of investment and in talent there. We've got some great universities in Canada churning out top talent. So I think the, the talent pool overall, though it's a, it's a really big country with a really little small population, um, you know, we're, we're able to really, I think, um, punch above our weight when it comes to being able to, to bring in great talent. Sure, we lose some to the Valley, but I also think like, Look at the insurance tax. You've got Columbus, Ohio. You've got Austin. You've got all these emerging kind of sectors and segments. And and I don't know that. Um, I mean, if if Hartsford is the mecca of insurance in in the states, then it's a long way away from the valley. We'll see. You know, but um, I think there's a lot of a lot of talent in a lot of places. And for us, it's just to, can we get people that match our values and and onboard them and get them building velocity in the team quickly. Yeah, with all with all my love to Hartford, Connecticut. It used to be a core back in the day, and they are trying to figure out how to become that again. Uh, that will be the best definition. There are many good people that are working at Hartford who are trying to figure out in the past two, three years, maybe even four, how they can pump, pump new blood into that area and working with the government and providing grants and all the stuff to, you know, to get new blood and get that rolling. But going back to you, you collected three great uh, partners and investors, uh, Gravitas, uh, Trisura, and of course, uh, Liberty Mutual. Um, how are you going to leverage them as uh, strategic investors? Yeah, I mean, we're, we're very fortunate. So we've got Trisura Group, uh, who's a TSX listed company, uh, TSU is their ticker. Um, you know, what a 1.2 billion market cap. And they've been a great supporter of ours for product, you know, as well as an investor of ours. And they also, uh, they participate on our board. So I think, you know, that's been great for us just as that strategic alignment that I think 
you know, the industry is looking for more stories of collaboration like that, where you can invest, invest some capital, we can underwrite good, profitable business, return that capital back to them in, in profitable premiums, and then kind of continue with that cycle as a supplier relationship. And, and so with Liberty Mutual, who I think is the sixth biggest insurance company in the world, I mean, they've come on recently as an investor. I think we'll replicate the model with them. You know, our focus is really underwriting really good business, improving that the algorithms we create can actually price and underwrite good loss ratios. And I think that's sort of a dif differentiator from some of the other companies that loss ratios are a challenge for. I mean, one of our key suppliers, we had a 4% loss ratio with. So we're underwriting really, really good, profitable, you know, small business insurance for this company. And that allows us to say, great, well, we wrote this much premium with you. Will you make an investment so we can keep accelerating? And it's a bit of a virtuous cycle. I think we'll find more insurance company partners alongside the institutional investors and high net worth that we have that will be able to support us to, to keep growing and scaling the business. Well, I think it's a it's an interesting thing looking at a Canadian company going to enter the U.S. market. Um, and where I think we have this strength is in the embedded model. You know, we have about 150 embedded deployments now um, and everything straight through processing, both on the, the personal line side and the small business side. And I think as we keep working with, you know, whether it's property tech who wants to embed renters insurance or it's small business, um, you know, networks or apps who so we can embed these products that really brings us for the low cost of acquisition to the North American market. And so I think our, our go-to-market has really worked well, but it allows us as a Vancouver company to access, you know, the entire North American market without having to put boots on the ground from a sales team perspective as you would in the traditional way. And so, you know, technology enables that, but there's a lot of different ways to innovate that I think we're, we're sort of building a unique model um, to deploy, you know, deploy our products out to both Canada and, and the U.S. and the, the overall ecosystem. So should I assume that you're planning to enter the U.S.? Oh, without a doubt. I mean, I think that'll be, it's definitely on our 2020 run horizon uh, is to enter the U.S. market. And, you know, again, it's, there's a lot, of, a lot of opportunities to serve small businesses and individuals, make it easy to access insurance products. I think there's some companies doing a great job of that. And I think we can sort of, you know, replicate that or find our own way to, to create those successes and, um, you know, build a great company as a result of it. And it's a lot of fun. I mean, there's definitely been their ups and downs, but it's a, it's a fun thing to be with a group of people kind of on the adventure of building a new organization and building a new company. And, you know, doing it remotely is, is a little bit of a different challenge. Um, I always thought it was going to be the bunch of people in the office and kind of all the rah-rah that comes with that. But, um, you know, we're on our own journey and, and uh, hopefully, you know, the, um, the lockdowns and whatnot kind of ease both for our small business customers, but also for us to be able to get together and and start to kind of recreate what um, we might have thought the experience would have been five years ago uh, when we started looking over the looking over the hill and saying we should go start a company and, and build this. Uh, that's great. So before we uh, conclude our conversation, do you have? And that's before I ask. Usually, ask a recommendation of a book and a life hack. We'll get to that. But before that. Do you have any tips or let's call it the hurdles that you passed as a founder of an insurer? Yeah, I think the the biggest one of just founding a tech company or founding a startup, you know, is um, a lot of times people look at the press releases and they get excited about those. We've been very, very fortunate to have great investors 
uh, support us. But, you know, the deal structure is never in the press release, right? So we've been fortunate to have really founder-friendly deal structures and work with some great investors that, you know, want to empower entrepreneurs. But I'd say to any founder, anyone that's looking to start in, you know, all the shine of raising venture capital or raising capital from, from investors, you know, the deal terms um, are always something to look out for. And I think, you know, to really pick your investors wisely in terms of them being partners and long-term partners, uh, I think is something that, um, you know, we've definitely learned as we've met with a whole bunch of different people. And I think it's a really good thing for a founder to really evaluate that when they're raising money. It's not just about the press release. It's, okay, well, what was it, press shares? And what were all the fine print things that they don't really teach you in business school? No one really talks about that when they say, hey, go pitch, you know, go pitch the value or go pitch whoever. And so we've been very fortunate, but I think um, it's something for founders, if anyone wants to get into it, for them to really understand and think a lot about when they want to go raise capital. So what's next for you? What are you looking for? Or if someone is listening, are you looking for more capacity, more people? You know, how can we, we, the royal we, or the listeners can be of a service to you? Yeah, I appreciate that. I think there's always opportunity for more capacity. Um, you know, we, we build products very rapidly. And so if there's an insurance company listing that wants to distribute products, um, you know, in the North American market from the PNC side, small business or individual, be great to work with them, uh, be able to serve customers better in a, in a digital way. Always looking for talent and, and employees that want to, you know, embody the core values, work hard and, and deliver, take on a bit of an adventure, um, be able to have candor and, and sort of bring that top talent to the organization. And, and of course, you know, you know, buy stock today. And, and if there's any chance that uh, there's investors listening, always an opportunity um, to look and say, well, how are we going to continue to accelerate this business into our Series B uh, and eventually into, um, you know, uh, I think building a, a public company is the way to build a hundred year old business. Um, there's a lot of shine around private as well but without the regulatory. But I think, you know, to build a public company is a way to build something that lasts forever. And insurance is definitely an industry where you can build that longevity. So, Uh, I think that'll be the route one day, but until then, if any investors that are listening, always an opportunity to chat and, uh, you know, teach them more about the business and how I might be able to partner. So the, one last question there. So what's the story of the boats that you have behind you? Well, back when we used to be able to, uh, to travel, I would go and collect these wooden ships or ships in a bottle from, um, you know, a variety of places that I, so Colombia or Costa Rica, Mexico, different places that I would visit. So I've got a kind of a, a collection from my travel. I used to be a travel writer for a few uh, major newspapers in Canada, um, sort of before, uh, before Apollo. And so that was always a passion of mine. I always loved traveling. It's a really, um, stupid thing to try and bring back in a suitcase. You know, admittedly, it's, it's either it's glass or it's the most kind of fragile thing. But for some reason, I just, got kind of hooked. I, uh, I love kind of model ships. And so it was uh, something that was always interesting to me and kind of something cool you can bring back from a place that brings a lot of character uh, from that place with it. Yeah, I've been trying to figure out. So I've been traveling a lot throughout my career. So there was a, at the beginning, I used to just grab like, you know, shot, glass shots. And then I realized, yeah, I'm in my 30s. It's cute, but it's damn stupid. <laughs> then as we progressed, uh, I don't know, I don't know if we can see all kinds of small art and stuff like that. And there was a point that it's like, yeah, that's a little bit too much, but still trying to pick up all kinds of small arts and crafts from uh, different locations, but great. So, luck.
I promise, last question, and that's a question that I ask everyone, can you give us a recommendation of a book, a life hack, or something that you picked up during lockdown? Yeah, I'll definitely, uh, I'll, I'll take the book one. Um, we give everybody in the company a copy of Good to Great um, by Jim Collins, and I think the lessons in that book, um, you know, we, we almost like read them out when it's like, how are we gonna solve a problem? All right, let's, let's look at, can we have candor? Can we have vigorous debate? Um, as a new group of people, how do you transform that? So good to great is, is something I think any entrepreneur is free uh, to really be able to embody those principles. I think there's, there's something about that book that's, um, that's special as a, a bit of a playbook to go and solve problems with. So that, that's my recommendation. Fantastic. Jeff, thank you very much for joining us today. I appreciate the time. It's been great. Thank you so much for the time. It's been a lot of fun. I enjoyed it.